Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Let me read for you here from the ESV. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. And all the residents of Lydda and, Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is God's word. Well, this morning, I wonder what do you think about the providence of God? When we talk about the providence of God, we talk about the ordinary workings of how God weaves the whole universe in order to accomplish his plans and execute his will. You might be aware of the term sovereignty, which deals with God's ability to do whatever he so desires. God's providence talks about how he achieves what he desires. And a constant witness of scripture is that God's providence, God's working to achieve his plans, can be both quiet and loud. For example, uh, the Lord Jesus tells us to not have a anxiety, to not worry about tomorrow, because the same God who feeds the birds will feed us. Well, if you think about it, how does God feed the birds? Through the normal processes of life. Worms are born and then they show up in a particular place and a bird is able to find it and eat. 
Some people, like some of you, good people here, buy bird seed and put it up somewhere and the birds fly in and eat. It's through the normal, quiet workings of life. That is quiet providence, where people are going about their business and life is normal. And in those moments, God works everything to accomplish His ends. But sometimes, though, God uses what we can call loud providence where he invades our natural order with things that are supernatural, that are not normal, that we don't expect to see all the time. You think, for example, Moses. Here's Moses looking after some some sheep. And then all of a sudden, there's a bush here that has fire on it, and he hears a voice from that bush. And And the voice tells him to take off his sandals because he's in a holy place. That is an unusual occurrence. I don't think most of us are used to hearing bushes talk. If you do, something's wrong. So what we're seeing though is that God invades our natural order sometimes to do things that are unusual, but it also does the same thing. It accomplishes His ends. He uses His providence, this loud providence, to accomplish the things that He wants to do in the world and in the universe. In the text in front of us, we see a remarkable tale of God using both these providences, the loud providence and the quiet providence, in order to bring, to, to accomplish his purpose of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. You must note and remember where we're at in the book of Acts. You'll remember at the beginning, the Lord Jesus said the disciples will be witnesses to the death and resurrection of Christ in, Ju- in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Peter and the disciples so far have done the first three. They have, they have witnessed about Christ in Jerusalem, in Judea, and we saw last time we were with Peter in chapter 8 that they witnessed about Christ in Samaria as well. But they have yet to approach the end of the earth. And when the Lord says the end of the earth, he's meaning that figuratively and literally. The, figuratively, the end of the earth is pointing to the peoples of the world all the way there, but literally it is pointing to the coastlands where the earth actually ends and sea begins. And the idea in in the scripture about the coastlands, the, the lands that are on the coast, is that that is where the worlds meet and where we find people that are not just Jews, not just Israelites. So when the Lord says that you will be my witnesses even to the end of the earth, He is pointing to the coastlands where people are found that are not Jews, that there is a meeting, a moving in and out of people. In in modern language, you would have said, you will be my witnesses to all the airport towns, the cities that have airports where there's people coming in and out and moving from all over the world. And that is is what it means. It means that they're going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so far, they have not done that. And here in our text, the Lord providentially takes Peter on a journey to the end of the earth where the Holy Spirit will fall on the Gentiles, which we'll see next week in chapter 10. 
Peter is on this journey providentially. He did not plan on traveling the way he went. See, as he goes, he performs a miracle which spreads gospel fame. Someone on the coastland, right on the coast, dies, and these people hear that Peter is nearby, and they urge him to come to the coast to take care of this person. And then Peter now is at the coast, Take after raising up Dorcas, which we'll see in a moment, and right up the coast from Joppa, it's a few kilometers up to Caesarea, where there is a, a devout Gentile there that the Lord wants to bring Peter to, to bring the gospel where the Holy Spirit will fall. So this is providentially Peter being moved by God to the end of the earth in order to bring the gospel there and that the Holy Spirit might fall. That's the that's the kind of the, the, the trees here, what, what is going on in the general movement of the text. Now, let's join Peter and see the significance of the things that are happening as he is on this journey to the end of the earth. Let's consider first here the first miracle from verse 32. Or he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. When it says that Peter is going here and there among them all, it is referring to Peter is traveling among all of the saints that now have peace as we saw last week. Look at verse 31. You see in verse 31 we saw that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And part of the way that they were now being built up is that Peter is able to take up an itinerant ministry, a preaching ministry, moving among all the churches, strengthening them and teaching them. And of course, at the same time as he's doing that, he's doing evangelism. So when he says he's moving here and there among them all, he's talking about all of these churches, Samaria, Judea, and Galilee. And so now Peter, he now arrives and his travels, as he's going around strengthening the churches, he arrives at a place called Lydda, which is 40 kilometers from Jerusalem and about 20 kilometers from the coast. And when he gets there, he finds a man named Aeneas. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let you know right at the beginning here, I'm going to mess this name up, okay? I have no earthly idea how to properly pronounce this. I've, I look this up and I realize I'm spending too much time on it. So just deal with it. I'm just going to try and not say anything that's too funny, but I think it's Aeneas or Aeneas. You can choose whichever you want. Before we get to talking about Aeneas, I want you to note the word that Luke uses here to describe the Christians at Lydda. Look at verse 32 again. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, among all these churches, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. This is significant. This is a significant term. It is used only four times throughout the entire, throughout the, the book of Acts. This is not a Luke's favorite term to describe Christians. His favorite term to describe Christians is the word, is the term disciple or disciples. But here at Lydda, and we're going to see just now also in Joppa. So two of the four times that it's used throughout the book is used here in these two stories. Here at Lydda and then at Joppa to describe them. 
So what is the significance? Is there any significance to this term? Well, I want you to note first that Lydda and Joppa, which is where these two miracles are, are coastal towns. Lydda is not on the beach, but it is in the coastal region. It's in the, it's in the, plain, the coastal plain of Sharon. And in the coastal valley, rather, of, of Sharon. And being a coastal town means that you have a mixed group of people. So if you're a coastal town, imagine, imagine a, a town like ours here, Johannesburg. It's a mixed group of people. Don't imagine Eastern Cape, where you just generally expect to find the English and the Tosas. Or Western Cape, where you expect to just find the, 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 the Afrika Afrikaners, English, and Tosas. Just, a, a, just a, a set defined group, okay, so then just Zulus and Indians. This is, no, I'm not, don't laugh, I'm not making a joke, I'm just trying to say, I'm trying to say these are the people that you find in these places. In Limpopo, you know you're going to find Pedis, Tongas, and Vendas, that's it. Generally, right? But this is, this is not, the, don't think that kind, this, these towns are like a place like Johannesburg, where you find an Englishman, a Dutchman, an Afrikaner, a British person, an American, a Tonga, a Vendor, a Zulu, all of them mixed here. If we were to all stand up here based on our tribes and cultures, we'll find all kinds of different things. You can't split us in half and say, these people are this and these people are that. It's, a, it's, a, it's an area, it's a meeting place. That's what these towns are. These coastal towns are a meeting place of different kinds of people. And that is significant because when there's a meeting place of different kinds of people, you find all kinds of idolatry and sin being done. You find all kinds of people, this person brings their God, and this person brings their God, and this other person brings their idolatry and everything, and you have this, mix, this mixed curry pot here of all kinds of different people worshipping all kinds of different gods, and there's nothing clear there. And so it is significant that he uses this term, because this term, hagios, which is translated as saints, literally means the different ones. The term saints that is used here means different ones, or holy ones, or separate ones. It is likely that Luke is referring to the disciples as a group here, that are the holy ones because they are surrounded by all kinds of different people who are unholy. See, the disciples now, this new humanity that Christ is forming, that has people from all these different groups, is now a set-apart people, a holy group in the midst of a sinning, unclean, defiled world. Are you seeing this? And so he's using this term to describe them. They are the among the, they are the holy ones. He is coming here to, he is coming to do this miracle among the holy ones in Lydda. Not the normal ones in Lydda, the holy ones. The ones that are set apart. And this hypothesis is pushed even further <clears throat> by the fact, excuse me, that when he refers to one Christian, Tabitha, in verse 42, he calls her a disciple. And then later, when he refers to the, rest of the, to the rest of the church, he calls them saints. He's, he's viewing them as a group. He's being, he's being purposeful in using the term saint as a group. They are the holy ones in the midst of this coastal region where there's all kinds of idolatries. The implication here for us is this, just as we begin. 
The church of God is a separate group of people that is different in, in a categoric way from the world around it. The church of God is a holy group. Peter calls us a royal, peace, royal priesthood. And from that standpoint, the apostles encourage us to act and live in light of that fact. You follow? This is why the apostles spend so much time speaking about the fact that there are certain sins that should not even be named among us. Why? Because we are a separate, holy, different group from the world that we are interacting with. Now don't hear me saying that these are perfect people. You follow? These are not perfect people. No, saints are saints, not because they are perfect, but because they are chosen. They are saints because God has set them apart from the world around them. They belong to God. We're not saying that this is a, a group of people that have some, some kind of a moral purity that everybody else around them can't attain to. But we're saying that these are people that God has chosen from him, for himself and brought to himself as a witness among all these nations. And so let that be an encouragement even as we begin. As a saint, as one who holds to the Lord Jesus Christ and follows him, chosen by God, how should I live? How should I be acting? How do I act out my sainthood? You know, the, the Roman Catholic Church has taken this doctrine of sainthood and really messed it up. They say certain people are saints. Not, every, not all Christians are saints. Certain people are saints. And, and one of the things that you know that somebody is a saint is that they have to perform some kind of a miracle. So to become a saint, saint this or saint that, you have to have done a miracle. Let me tell you now, by the grace of God, you don't have to perform a miracle to be God's holy chosen one. It is by God's grace and God's choosing and God's love that God looks at you and sets his love on you and then sets you apart in the world. You do not have to earn it by trying to pay actors to prove that you can make miracles in some, in some, some way. Okay, let's, we're, we're moving on with that. Let's now come back here to our man Peter as he arrives in Lydda among these saints. And there he finds a man in verse 33 named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years, being paralyzed. And Peter says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. There are two things that are worth noting here just as we try to understand this text. First, him being, this man, Aeneas, being paralyzed suggests strongly, like we have seen in Acts chapter 3 and in many other cases in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that this man was a beggar. So when, when you're a paralytic as a man, back in those days, you don't really have many options available to you as to what you can do for money. And we have seen constantly, consistently, that paralytics who are paralyzed like this usually beg and ask people to help them. This means that this, ma this, this, this man was well known, and certainly you see that uh, there in, uh, when, 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 after he's healed, you certainly see that because people see him and are like, what's happened here? Because we know this guy. Now this means that the Lord has come in healing power to this man Aeneas um, to, to, 
to bring the gospel to that area because the Lord has chosen this man who is a known paralytic. This, this miracle is not haphazard. It is pointedly chosen so that its witness can reverberate throughout this entire region. And I also want to notice the second thing that's very important. Notice how Peter heals him. It's an unusual phraseology even for Peter and the apostles. They don't usually speak this way or at least up to this point in the book of Acts. Look at how he says. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Hey, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. This phrase suggests that this was an evangelistic work. Being in Lydda, he is introducing Jesus Christ as the healer to Aeneas that Aeneas had longed for. You can imagine being a man being bedridden for eight years, longing for some kind of deliverance, probably seeing physicians and nothing happens, seeing these people, nothing happens, and maybe some other, you know, some people like Simon the Magician coming in and saying, we can fix you, and nothing happens. And then Peter comes and introduces, this is the name that heals you, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who brings entire healing to your body. And because of that, you know that he can bring entire healing to your soul. And third, look at the healing. How long does it take before he is healed after Peter says so? Immediate. It is immediate. Just like the paralytic healed by the Lord in Luke chapter 5, this paralytic gets up and makes his bed immediately as he is told. So what's the point of the story? So we've just heard about this man Aeneas being healed. What's the point of the story? What is the story trying to tell us? Well, the point of the story is to tell us the point of the miracle. Look at verse 35. This is the point. All of this, is, this is the main point of this miracle and subsequently the point of the story. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Friends, I've said this before in the series because necessity requires it. And I'll say it again if perhaps you have only now joined us and you, you weren't with us when we saw all those miracles happening at the beginning of the book of Acts. Like with all the miracles done by the apostles in the public square, the point of the miracle is not the miracle. The point of the miracle is not the miracle. The miracle is a sign. A sign to what? A sign to Jesus Christ. The reason the miracles in the New Testament are called signs and wonders is because they are exactly that. They are meant to be pointing you to Jesus Christ and what you can get from him. Not just getting this healing, but you can get much more from Jesus Christ. You can get life and life eternal. To say this in a different way, let me ask you this question. When you hear of a miracle, somebody says they performed a miracle, how do you know it's true? How can you test that the miracle that you've just heard of from TV or radio, whatever it is, that that's a true miracle that actually happened? How do you know? There are two things that this text will help us in answering this question. First, you know a true miracle has happened when you don't have to wonder if a miracle has happened. It's obvious. Are you, are you hearing me? 
You know a miracle has happened when you don't have to question whether or not actually has a miracle happened. It is obvious. A miracle is a sign. It is loud. It shouts. It cannot be denied. It is an obvious thing that has happened. Aeneas was clearly a known cripple. Look at verse 35. The people saw Aeneas and turned to Jesus. Did you see this? Look at the language here. The residents of Lydda and, and the plain of Sharon saw, saw him and turned to Jesus. Aeneas is, the fact that Aeneas is now walking made a lot of people question, what is going on? What does this mean? Because we know this guy, he was a cripple for eight years. What does this mean? And then they were probably told, we're not, of course, Luke is not telling us everything that happened in the sequence here, but they were probably told about the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter probably preached the gospel, and then these people all turned to the Lord. Do you see what a miracle does? It is obvious. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to, you don't have to wonder. You know, those, it's quite funny when you see those people on TV saying, uh, look, I'm going to make them, I'm going to do a miracle now. Look, your leg is going to grow. Your leg is going to grow. Your leg is going to grow. And then the angle of the camera changes like this and then it's like the, the leg is going to grow and you're like we're like did something really happen there or what's going on and even the person who's being healed is not sure if they're being healed that's not a true miracle a true miracle because it's a miracle it is a sign so it is obvious when you're driving and you see a stop sign you don't park by the stop sign and marvel at the stop sign and polish it what a wonderful stop sign when you're driving and seeing a stop sign, you know you need to stop. And the stop sign is designed such that even if you're driving at night, you're able to see it. It is obvious. And then it points to something else. Stop now, allow other people to, 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 to go, and then move forward. Do you understand this? That's how you know a true miracle has happened. A true miracle has happened because you don't have to question if a true miracle has happened. Second thing. The second thing, the second proof of the miracle is that it leaves a dent in people's beliefs. Look at this. The people saw him and they turned to the Lord. Something changed. They saw him and they could not live like they were living before. Notice this. It's like you, you, they saw, you know, there's certain things that you can just see and go on with your life. Oh, I'm, I'm, you're driving on the road and you, you see someone there, you know, selling something on the road, trying to sell you. You just continue with your life. You see this, oh, look at this, and you move on. You see a beggar here in Johannesburg, you see them, you, you move on with your life. You, you, see, you see police officers stopping people on the side of the road. It's a normal thing that happens. You see it, you move on with your life. But if you see a true miracle, you cannot just move on with your life. If you see a true miracle happened, a true New Testament miracle happened, it's going to leave you with the dead. You're going to have to figure out how do you respond to this. And there's two ways to respond. These guys here, and like the same people we're going to meet just now in Joppa, they responded in the positive. They said, this is serious. This means that this Christ is the king. We want to follow him. They turned to him. But do you remember how the Pharisees responded to the miracles? How did the Pharisees respond to Jesus' miracles? They couldn't deny the miracles because the miracles were obvious. So what did they say? This man does these miracles by the power of... Satan. They can't deny the miracle. 
They can't deny it, it's obvious. They can't even say it's some kind of shenanigans. No, the miracles are obvious. So we have to find some other way to discredit him. So let's say that he's doing these by the power of Satan. There's two ways to respond to the speaking of God. You repent and believe and listen to what he is pointing you to, or you can make all kinds of things and, and, and allow yourself somehow to continue with your beliefs and finagle and, and, and say all kinds of things and ignore the truth that is in front of you. A true miracle is, a true, is obvious, and a true miracle leaves you with a dent in your beliefs. People all turned to the Lord. These people in the plain of Sharon, in the coastal plain of Sharon here, many believed. When he says all the residents, the idea is that many, he's not literally saying that every single person in Lydda and in the whole coastal plain of Sharon, which goes up to Carmel, he's not saying that every single human being they believe. He's saying such a large number of those who saw this, they believed it. And so the sum total is that in this coastal plain, on the coast, here at the end of the world, at the end of the Jewish world, at the end of the Jewish earth, we're seeing many people being added to this group of people called the saints. Now, let's turn to our second miracle in this chapter. Now, while, now there was in Joppa, verse 36, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Now, then in those days she became ill and died, and when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now, while Peter is preaching and teaching and working in Lydda, 20 kilometers or so away on the coast at a town called Joppa, we're being introduced to a lady in the church who died, whose name was Tabitha. Uh, Joppa, of course, is a place that we have met before in the scriptures. You remember we met Joppa when, when uh, 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 wow, Jonah was trying to run away from the word of the Lord, and he got on a ship to Tarshish. And where did he take that ship? At Joppa. So this is a, this is a place that we know. Now, take a moment, I want us, before we get into everything that's happening here regarding this miracle, I want us to take a moment and think about this Tabitha that we're being introduced to and whose life story we're being told. We're being given an epitaph here. She was full of good works and acts of charity. This is who she was. This is the sum total, the summary of her life. When we think about Tabitha, the way to summarize her life is that she was full of good works and acts of charity. This here suggests a woman who has given her life to serving the people in her community in accordance with the Old Testament custom. And these phrases, good works and acts of charity, are specifically related to serving those who are in need in the community. You see, the Old Testament required and, and urged that, that, those who, that people should look towards the needs of those who are in need in the Israelite community. When you think about how God designed 
how he will provide for, for his people in his covenant community who had no means, such as the fatherless, such as the widows, such as the paralytics, and many others who cannot, who are not, who do, who are not of means. The way that the Lord designed to provide for those people in his covenant community was through the acts of charity and good works that he commanded everybody else to do. In fact, in Isaiah 117, God, God commands the Israelites to take up the widow's cause in court and defend the fatherless. You are to take up their cause. Don't just see widows in the covenant community. See the fatherless and just leave them be. You take up their cause. You be their champion like the Good Samaritan was. You remember the Good Samaritan? Good Samaritan took this guy on the side of the road, took him to an inn and said, whatever you need to do to take care of him, charge it to me. I am going to, I'm pleading, I'm standing for this person. I'll be their surety. And here we're being told that this woman, Tabitha, translated in Greek, Dorcas, gave herself to this work. In fact, here she is dead, and this is the main summary of her life. What a, what a way to go out, right? What, a, what, what an epitaph to have on your life. This person gave their life to serve those people who belong to God who were in need. Those people who are loved by God and were in need. I want you to consider a few things, church. That there is, there is perhaps no greater measure of your thankfulness to the Lord Jesus for saving you than how you treat his sheep who are in material need. Let me say that again, slower this time. There is perhaps no greater measure of your thankfulness to the Lord Jesus for saving you than how you treat his sheep who are in material need. Let me rephrase this positively. Are you in deep gratitude to Christ for bringing you among his saints and calling you a holy one? Then consider the sheep of Christ around you who are in need. I want you to consider that Jesus Christ takes personally, he takes it extremely personally, how you and I treat those of his sheep who are in need and in dire straits. This is, a, let me take you to a text in Matthew chapter 25. Come with me in the come there with me. Matthew 25, and I want you to see this in your own Bibles. That when the Lord Jesus is talking about the end, the judging of the world, look at the language that he uses to describe those whom he's going to welcome into his eternal rest and those whom he's going to throw away into the fire. Look at the language that is used. Verse 31 of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. You welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, hold on, this is confusing. When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? We've never even met you on the earth. When, when did we do this? When, when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and give you clothes? I mean, we don't remember when all of this happened. Can you refresh our memory? Verse 40, and the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you have did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Do you see how personally the Lord Jesus takes how you treat those in need, sick, imprisoned for the gospel, uh, needing to be cared for in prison, a stranger traveling, you know, just like traveling across, I need to go to this other place, I need a place to sleep. Oh, you are a brother, you are a Christian, come on in. See how he takes it personally? You did it to me. This is what I would encourage all of us to do, to consider those in the covenant community, those who are loved by God, those who are called saints, as deserving our energy and giving our lives to, to serve them in their moments of need. Now I want to I I make this clear. This text is not talking about people in the world. Did you see that? It's talking about the saints. See, Tabitha was doing this to those in the covenant community of Israel. And this is talking about those who are my brothers. Now, we're not saying that you are not to do these great works and kindness for those who are in the world. But the scripture says that you do this especially to those who are in the household of God. Paul says you do this especially, primary, primarily to those who are in the household of the Lord. By way of application... I also want to speak to those whom I think might have switched off as I'm speaking just now. The students and the children in the room. Students and the children in the, loo, in the room are probably thinking, well, you know, I don't have much to give. I don't have much. Most of the time, I'm the one receiving. But you have to listen to me. Children, students, listen to me. There is a lesson you must learn. And that lesson is this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give and to, than to receive. We understand that you are in a phase of life where you are mostly receiving. You know, the rest of the saints here uh, through the church account pay for how, for how you get to church with the church bus, uh, sponsor you in different things, take care of you. They give you, they give you your food. Oh, thank you. Uh, they, thank you, uh, they, they, give you, they give you food, they, they take care of you in all these different ways, the saints. And, so, and certainly I'm not making you feel guilty about that. That's, 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 the role, that's the phase that you're in. But you must be thinking, even in your situation, you must be considering ways to bless others. 
Not that you must go hungry. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that he's not saying this so that you must grow hungry. But you must also be thinking about the needs of the Christians around you. Don't just be satisfied saying, well, I'm a student, I'm a child, I just receive. Just, oh, oh, there's food, there's, there's a lunch happening, oh, the rest of the church will take care of that. Oh, there's people talking about lifts. Oh, the, some, some people will take care of that. Think. How can you bless? How can you bless others? Hey, listen, you know, I just got some extra cash here now. Let me use it to Uber the, the three of us to church together. You know, it is more blessed. The Most of the blessing is in the giving than in the receiving. So you need to be thinking and considering ways. We're not told that Tabitha was a rich woman. Did you notice that? We don't, we don't know. For all we know, she could have been a widow. In fact, there's, there's thinking that she was probably a widow herself. And yet, she was making, you, making garments and doing things for the sake of those who are in need. So saints, I commend Tabitha to you as a godly example for every one of us to emulate. Okay, now, now back to our text, right? So... Tabitha, so we're told she's full of good works. Verse 37, in those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. Tabitha pass, passes away, and the church is clearly devastated. They love her. And so they wash her body and they put her in an upper room and they, they send two men to go call Peter in. Peter, come now. They ask him, Peter, please come. Do not delay, come. Let me ask you this. What do you think they were calling Peter in for? Okay, you know how the story goes, but just take yourself to this point in the story. They, they heard, Peter is here at Lydda. Oh, that's just now. You guys, go run. Let's take the body and put it upstairs. You guys, go run and get Peter and tell him to come here. What do you think they're asking Peter to come here for? Are they asking Peter to come here to console them and comfort them? Are they asking Peter to come here and teach them about death and life and our future hope of resurrection? What do you think? There's, there's evidence here in the text that suggests very strongly that this church was wanting Peter to come here and resurrect her. Number one, notice that they send these men and urge Peter to come. Look, when? Immediately. Now, come now while her body is in the upper room. Come without delay. This is a strong phrase. Basically, you can just... Imagine, who has a very strong handshake among us? Think of Jasper coming to you and saying, come. Someone with a very strong handshake. Hey, Peter, how are you? Nice to meet you. Now listen, Assam. Okay, this is, this is a very strong phase. Come now. They're urging him to come. They wouldn't, be urging, they wouldn't be saying, stop talking, stop ministering here, if all they wanted was him to just come and comfort them. They want something. And also, look at when he arrives. When he arrives, when Peter arrives there, look at the weird thing that happens as soon as Peter arrives. The widows show Peter the tunics and the garments that Tabitha had made for them. Well, that's a bit odd. He, he arrives, and the first thing that he's shown is, look at the things that, look at the garments. 
And look at the tunics. And in fact, it's possible that they were even wearing them, these widows. Look at all of our clothes. Look, Peter, look at all, what, what Tabitha did for us. Why, why would they do that? They're doing that because they are commending Tabitha to Peter and saying, she is worthy of you to perform this miracle. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus and there was a centurion who, who wanted a miracle from the Lord Jesus? And then the people said, come, come, please do this for him. This man is worthy of you to do this because of how he has treated our people. So now they're doing the same thing. They're commending Tabitha to Peter. Peter, come, please raise this person up. So this raises a few questions for us. I hope you can think about you. I hope you can, you're already walking with me here. This raises a few questions. How does this make sense? Is their hope in the right place? Why would they ask Peter to come here and raise someone from the dead? Peter has been an authenticate, is an authenticated, hey boo. when you try to be fancy and use big words. <laughs> Let's try that again. Peter has been authenticated as an agent of Christ who does what Christ did. They know that Jesus Christ raised up Jairus' daughter and Lazarus and the widow's son. And they are well aware that in Peter's traveling ministry, the same power is at work in him. And so they are not placing their hope in the wrong place. They're placing their hope in the right place. Now notice, it would be foolish for someone to have this hope today since there are no more authorized agents of Christ in this way. You follow? There are no more apostles who are authorized to be miracle workers. Those guys are all gone. And so it is foolish for anyone to place their hope today in this way. Think of someone, if somebody died here among us, how foolish would it be for us to, oh, this person's died. Let's, let's take him and put him in Michael's office and then let's go call someone to come and raise them from the dead. It would be, would be a foolish thing, wouldn't it, to do that? But it wasn't foolish for them because the authorized agent of Jesus Christ was not only alive at that time, but he was just 20 kilometers away. You know, when I, when I was reading this, I was thinking of our own brother, Brother Given, whom the Lord took to be with him last year. If Peter was alive, let's say Peter was in Durban preaching, and Brother Given passes away here, we would have we would have done everything we can to bring Peter here. See, the love that this church has for Tabitha is such, because of how she served them, they are willing to, whatever hope we can, because Peter's here, Peter, please come and pray and get this done. We loved Brother Given. He went in and out among us, serving us. Many of you here are trophies of his work. But we don't have a Peter or a Paul among us. And so the brother, our brother went and was with the Lord. But our joy should not be any less. Amen. Because we will be with our brother. Our brother has beat us to the punch. He is with the Lord and we are going to be with him. That is our hope. Our hope is that we will live with our brother again. We've, on, we've only said farewell. We will see you later. Is what we've said to our brother. It's the same thing for all of the rest of us now who don't have Peters and Paul. 
And I want to drive this point home to you to see how serious this, this is. Bethel Church in California in the US made a mockery of Christianity in 2019 when they spent days praying for the resurrection of their worship leader's daughter. Did anybody know that story? It's happened in 2019. And they even got a hashtag going on social media. Hashtag wake up Olive. Olive was the name of the girl. And they were jumping up and down in this prayer room at Bethel saying, come alive, come alive, dry bones, come alive. For days on days, when the, when the little girl had passed on. Now church, death is a serious and painful thing. And hope, but hope deferred, the Proverbs tell us, makes the heart sick. We must hope in the right things and not hope where the Lord Jesus didn't say we must hope. The Lord has never promised us resurrections. And it was foolish, unwise, and made a mockery of Christianity because the little girl, the little girl stayed dead. See, we must not, this is why proper theology and proper doctrine is crucial to our lives with God to make sure that we are expecting from God what God has promised to give us. You following me? So dear saints, please, uh, hope in the right things. Don't, don't hope in so-called miracle workers today. They're all shamans. They're trying to fleece you for money. There's no more Peter and Paul, no more designated, authorized agent of Jesus Christ as such that we can hope for resurrections among us. The seminal and crucial hope of Christianity is the final resurrection. That in the Lord Jesus Christ we will live again. When he returns, we will live again. But those who are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be resurrected and put back to their bodies, but they will what but what what the future holds for them is not anything that can be called life. Because after they're put back in their bodies, they're going to be destroyed by God forever and ever. But if we are in Christ, if we believe in Him, if we hope in Christ, we will live entirely for eternity with Him and with Tabitha and with Brother Given as well. Amen. So now, look at what happens as we come to an end here. Look at what happens, the effect of this miracle now after Peter has opened. So verse 40, but Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up, and then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. Notice that Peter again here speaks the word and the miracle happens immediately after he has prayed. This time though he prayed. Before he just spoke, now he started off by first praying to the Lord and then he spoke a word and it happened immediately. She stood up and then he presented her and the people, and look at the effect, it became known throughout all Joppa and what was the effect? Many believed in the Lord. This is the point of the miracles, such that many will believe in the Lord Jesus. But even as I close, I want to say this. Perhaps you're here and you're saying, well, I'll, can I just see a miracle and then I'll believe in your Lord Jesus? Let me tell you this. Some, the Lord Jesus says something in Luke 16 that's quite striking. He says, 
that even if miraculous things were to happen, if people's hearts are hard and not listening to the word of God, they will never turn anyway. You remember the story in Luke 16? He said, if, he, he said this, this man in the pit is saying, send, send him to my brothers, because if they see a ghost, a miraculous thing, they'll surely believe. And Abraham says, no, if they don't take seriously Moses, they don't take seriously Moses, they'll never take seriously uh, a ghost that shows up for them. So you might say, I need a miracle and then I'll believe. And I'm saying the reason you don't believe is because you don't want to. You are, you, are, you, are, you are crushing underneath your feet the knowledge of God and you need to repent and believe. This gospel is the same for all of us and today there's still an opportunity for any and all to turn and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come for the forgiveness of sins. Come for true and internal, la internal lasting healing. Not for temporal things, but for life everlasting. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. As we have walked with Peter, we have seen wonders in your word. We've seen how you work. We've seen that you are drawing many towards yourself. We see the work that you are doing. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to also uh, to be as focused as you are on your mission. That you would help us to participate in this mission of drawing in many to, the, to being called saints. We thank you, Lord, for calling us saints for choosing us. Not many of us were wise, not many of us were impressive, but you chose us all the same and put us in this place, um, here in your courts. And we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for this. And we pray for any and all who are here with us, who are on the periphery, who are near the kingdom, but not in the door. The Lord, that you'd move the ground underneath them to bring them in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.